Today on Makers Cast, I chat with Eisner Award-winning comic artist Janet Lee. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Makers Cast, my excuse to talk to interesting people in the name of marketing. Which I'm very fond of that uh, tagline, just because it's true. It sounds like a great plan. Yeah, because I get to plug my small business at the end of every episode, just having talked to someone that I want to talk to anyway. That sounds convenient yeah. and uh, and and dual tasking. You yeah. know, yeah. Simplicity. Simplicity. So uh, I am joined today by Janet Lee. Hi, I'm Janet Lee. How do you introduce yourself? Is it comic artist, illustrator, or it depends oh, on the day? I don't know. It kind of depends on the day. Probably illustrator, mostly because I hold out a small hope that at some point I'm also going to do children's book illustration. Sure. So we'll That's, just sort of blanket term everything in there. That seems like the gravy train, right? It is. It does. My um, my agent's been encouraging me to try it. So I've got a couple of ideas that mm-hmm. we're going to try pitching for things. So cool. we'll see. So uh, just to roll it back a little bit. Yeah. So uh, in preparation for this, I was looking back on your about the artist pages in uh, the books that I have. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a line I didn't notice before in I think it was the Sea Sirens about the artist is that you made a newspaper like of your own as a kid with comic strips in it. I did. I did. It was it was more um, it was more because I got super bored in church. <laughs> oh, <laughs> terrible thing to admit. And, and we all um, did. My parents would give me paper because otherwise I apparently had a tendency to lie on my stomach on the pews to look at people's feet behind and um, they wanted to discourage that. So I got paper to draw with and uh, would make little newspapers that had um, like uh, crossword puzzles Mm. and comic strips in them. So that's sort of how I got started. Nice. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how good they were. None of none have survived to this day, but... Um, how old were you? Oh, I think I started doing this around seven or eight. And they I were think very anyone around simple. You, sure, I think anyone around you would have been impressed at the completion, let alone the quality. Oh, I don't think they were very good, and I don't think that they were necessarily complete, but I just liked the idea of making them, so it kept me distracted the whole time. So sure. that was good. Now, if it makes you feel better, my wife, her entire family is artists, mm. like all four of them. And so the one time that uh, I went to church with them in her hometown, it was just mm. a row of all four of them doodling on various things. Well, that's, my dad was an engineer, and he used to draw things for me. So if I couldn't figure out how to draw something, he would help me out with stuff as well. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> but uh, in terms of that same era, who, who were some early influences like that you oh. went straight for comic strips? I don't know. You know, I honestly thought to start with, I would end up in children's book illustration. I mm. have always loved comics and graphic novels, but I thought since my um, since my artwork tends to be um, so heavily influenced by by classic illustrations, like like a John Tenniel, like a um, Winsor McKay, I, I, I tend to gravitate toward that earlier um, earlier time frame. Um, I really thought I would end up doing like spot illustrations for children's books to start with. And um, so my early influences are bizarre. I mean, I, I remember very clearly some picture books I liked as a child, like um, this one called Jerome about a very psychedelic book about a frog who mm. thought he was a prince. Don't think it's in print anymore. Um, and the first one though that I really remember being blown away with was um, I was seven 
we were in San Francisco. I bought my first book on my own. It was a red faux leather bound copy of Alice in Wonderland with oh, the John wow. Tenniel illustrations in it. Mm. And um, I was kind of lost at that point. I assumed Windsor McKay was going to show up, and I just like saying his name. I do, too. Because it's the most early 20th century name. It really is. I mean, I, and, I, and I sometimes when I'm writing it down, listing influences, I can't ever remember if it's Windsor or Windsor. Yeah. The D is in it or not. So we have to kind of look it up every time. Based on my notes, no D. There's no D. I'm pretty sure there's no D. And then I have to look up whether it's M-C-C-A-Y mm-hmm. or M-C-K-A-Y. Right. But it's two C's. <laughs> Yeah, Windsor McKay, who some listeners may know as a pioneer of early animation, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing to think about. It is. It is. Well, he's also um, he also was one of the Hearst, the big Hearst illustrators. Yep. So um, he actually did a lot more work. We, we tend to think of him with Little Nemo and Slumberland, but um, and that's sort of what survived that we remember. But he did a ton of other stuff. Mm. Um, he's fascinating, fascinating character. Um, in fact. Um, I came very close to buying. There's there's apparently a graphic novel about Windsor McKay's life that's oh, wow. out right now, and I came very close. I only had so much weight in my suitcase <sighs> coming back from London, so I couldn't grab it. But I came very close. I think I'm going to try to order it for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone should get that. It's called McKay, graphic novel, Windsor McKay's go. life. Get it. I, I have no affiliation with this book whatsoever, but it looks fascinating, and mm-hmm. his life is fascinating. So. <laughs> yeah, biographical like historical graphics. Yeah. Are pretty fascinating. They really are. Um, well, I mean, my friend Amy Chu, who wrote the uh, the Sea Sirens books, um, is fond of saying that comics are a medium, not a genre. So you can find absolutely anything in it that you want. And yeah. some of the nonfiction stuff is some of my favorite stuff, honestly. Yeah. Um, it's a way of communicating the information, I think, a lot more efficiently sometimes. Mm-hmm. Definitely less I hate to say boring, but you know. It's less dense. It is. I mean, um, they made a graphic novel of the 9 11 report. Mm. 9 11 report's not very readable, but the graphic novel was surprisingly easy to get all the information. It basically became a bunch of infographics. Yeah. And you could just take it in really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I hope we do more of that. I, I yeah. wish we had more uses. Maybe in classroom settings and stuff for graphic novels. Yep. Maybe this ties into the next thing I wanted to ask, but it seems like we are just recently getting into a space where a, a few really big names are getting graphic novels into the classroom, like your your Raina Tejelmeyer's. Oh, yeah. Especially Raina Tejelmeyer. Raina, yes. Absolutely. She's... Uh, it's Tejelmeyer, right? Telgemeyer. Really? It is. <laughs> but the L's over there. I know. I apologize. That's okay. I, I said it so. that. I originally I, said Tegelmeyer, and then I heard Chris Schweitzer say Tegelmeyer, so yeah, I just I don't know. pivoted. Raina, I'm sorry. We're friends. <laughs> we've been we've gone out to dinner before, oh, and no. if I'm mispronouncing your name, I apologize. Uh, she's, we can uh, take it again. No, like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> Maybe let's look it up, and we can take that out. But <laughs> it's wrong. But it's uh, but Raina is um, she's she's just a sweetheart. I'm as happy as I can possibly be that that her books are getting into classrooms and that are, I mean, she had the, her newest one, Guts, was the top selling book in the U.S. a few weeks ago. That's amazing. Is her and what, uh, Daft Pilkey? Yeah. 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 killing it every time. They are, 100%. He's, he's a hoot too. Hmm. If you ever get a chance to hear him live, go, he's hilarious. The uh, creator of Captain Underpants, among other things. Creator of Captain Underpants. (laughs) 
among many other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of leads into what I wanted to ask about because um, I think we've talked about this before because I worked in a few bookstores yes. before this. You worked at uh, a place that any bookseller in the country knows but very not well. Not average people. Not average people. No, uh, at Ingram. Ingram. Ingram Book Company. I think um, nowadays it's probably the largest resale book wholesaler in the U.S. Um I mean, there's, there's a couple of big book wholesalers, but this is the one that mainly serves the retail market. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a buyer there, so that was a great way to kind of get... I don't know, you kind of teach yourself to be an uber consumer, which is really helpful when you are um, when you go into the, the creative end of things later on. Sure. Yeah. So as a buyer, does that mean you are choosing what books are distributed by Ingram? Well, in theory, yes. Although as a wholesale company, as opposed to a retailer, there is very little question of which books you're going to carry because you want to carry the, bre- the as, as broad a list as possible. Sure. But um, what you're trying to do is um, get the right quantity okay. in um, so that you can cover the, the sweet pot. The sweet spot for a wholesaler is going to be a book that might be underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it might be a little quieter and have a sudden upsurge uh, where the retailer isn't necessarily prepared for it. They yeah. haven't bought enough on their own and they've got to scramble a little bit and get books in. So you've got the books and you can mm-hmm. ship them to them very quickly. Being so. like doing the mental chess of being ahead of the zeitgeist. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's not always the obvious book. So uh, at that point in your life, when you worked at Ingram, you, we were talking before, you said yeah. for 16 years. Yeah, I was there for 16 years. Um, I, I did a bunch of things there. It wasn't constantly being a buyer. Mm. Um, I worked for a little while as the liaison for, I think, Microsoft Press when we were distributing them. I know, it was odd. Um, And then I I worked for a little while in their print-on-demand division when it was very, very first Mm. um, getting started. I think it was one of the first five employees. Mm. The um, savior of special orders at bookstores everywhere, let me say. Exactly, but at the time it was was kind of... It was kind of crazy. It was so new that no one knew what it was, and we were having to really call and sell people on the idea of putting their backlist in, never out of print, blah, blah, blah. But um, that was really helpful when nowadays when I have to figure out sizing for pre-press <laughs> and things like that, it's good to have. Um, and then I worked in international sales for a while. I was one of the sales reps, hmm. Ingram International. And then I bought things, and buying was my favorite, I think. Um, no offense to all my other coworkers. I love <laughs> working with you, too, but the buying part was my favorite job. Sure. But, so yeah. uh, during that period, how was art still a present factor like in your uh, outside work life? Not all of it. Um, I got a lot of uh, creative fulfillment out of being a buyer. Yeah. It's, um, it's just, depending on the the books you're buying, it, it, there's a lot of creativity that goes into hearing a list, hearing what's coming out and sort of, I don't know, reading the tea leaves a little bit, mm-hmm. seeing what's, uh, what's going to come out and, and, and having developed enough of a, um, a feel for the market trends that you can, um, pick the next winner yeah. <laughs> or at least get close enough that you can get ahead of the curve on it. Um, eventually I was promoted to be in charge of the textbook buying division, mm. which 
everybody I worked with was lovely. The publishers were lovely, but the buying process itself was much more analytical, much less creative at that point. Um, and at that point, my husband, um, encouraged me to start taking art classes again and, um, kind of threw me off the deep end and, um, signed me up to be part of some local art shows around Nashville. Sure. So, um, that was sort of my way to get creative fulfillment Mm -hmm. when it went away from the job a little bit, but that whole first part at Ingram, I was, I was okay. I mean, I was maybe a little, a little dreamy, a little wanting to, um, to, to do some creative things as well, but it was enough. Um, it was really the fact that I started working in a more analytical end of things that, Mm -hmm. that drove me. Yeah, because it sounds like from the buyer position, you could kind of do the Ebert thing of being able to champion certain 100%. books. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. You can um, you can pick favorites. You can find ways to position things a little, um, let people know about it, let the publishers advertise in proper ways. It sort of sort of give a little guidance and um, help see some books that you you think really have a shot. Sure. Get there. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. So how does that transition happen from Ingram to like Dapperman? Yeah. What, what, did you leave Ingram before or after? No, I was, I was, I'm, I'm still a little mortified that I was spending millions of dollars of other people's money while I was trying to finish a deadline. <laughs> um, apparently I did an okay job. Sorry guys. But it was, um, there was, there was a lot less sleep than I probably should have been doing. Um, no, I, uh, so I had started, I had really been sort of doing the, the artwork, um, on the side for maybe five or six years at that point was starting to, um, do gallery shows was showing in other States was Mm. starting to have a little bit of a, of a gallery career, um, different, uh, publishers would talk to me from time to time about maybe doing spot illustrations or children's books, which is what I thought I would do. Um, and then my friend Jim McCann, who had worked for Ingram um, and had left Ingram and gone to work for Marvel Comics mm-hmm. in their marketing department, decided I mean, he'd always wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And um, Jonathan Hickman gave him a piece of advice and said, write something that Marvel would never be able to do. And uh, that way you can sort of because Jim really wanted to write Marvel, but that would be a way to showcase what he could do sure. without um, sort of stepping on toes. It's weird to be marketing and writing at the same time. So um, he came home one year for Christmas. Um, I had done a bunch of art shows and taken the art down. Um, I had just some disparate pieces. One was like a six-foot-tall Magritte-inspired piece of men in dapper suits mm-hmm. with canes raining down over the rooftops of Paris. Um, one was a little ornament of a boy in a blue suit with goggles. Um, one was a little robot angel that was just a tiny piece. Jim bought all of them, went home, and two months later he sent me an email one day at work um, with the opening lines for Return of the Dapper Men and asked me if I wanted to do a graphic novel. Wow. I said yes. <laughs> it sounded like Peter Pan, honestly, to begin with. Um, so that was sort of how it started. He... Then, because he, he, he knew so many people in the industry, he set up an appointment at San Diego Comic-Con to talk to um, Stephen Christie, who was then with Archaea Comics, um, 
pitched the book to him along with some gallery art that I had done because I had never done any sequential work at all. Right. Uh, well, apart from, you know, apart from comic, my but... seven-year-old, you know, yeah, apart from my church, my church comics. <laughs> um, and he uh, he pitched it. They took it, and immediately I had to figure out how to make a comic book. Right. So. <laughs> Now, just for context for a listener, because I, I assume most people who are going to click on a podcast with your name are familiar with the book, but Hopefully. just in case. <laughs> uh, Return of the Dapper Men being the 2010 yes. graphic novel, I was as I was making my outline of things to talk to you about, I realized I don't know how to describe it. Do you? <gasps> what I usually tell people is it's a surrealist fairy tale. Um, story about a world where there's no grown-ups, just kids and robots, and they don't really interact except for one human boy and a robot girl who are friends. Um, because time has stopped completely, there's no longer dreams, there's no longer creativity, people don't read, people don't make, um, until suddenly 314 dapper men descend from the sky, the clocks start up again, um, the dapper men are there to restart time, so one very special dapper man known as 41 helped the kids learn what it means to grow up, to dream, to have a destiny, and it all takes place between 3.15 and bedtime. Mm-hmm. So that's my <laughs> weird spiel. But as you can see, it's a it's it's almost a book that defies law, de- defies description in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And I have no idea how Jim pitched this on the floor of San Diego Comic Con. That's an excellent question. But I and uh, should also say your art in that oh, book well. particularly defi- <laughs> defies description as well. Yeah, I um I you know again not knowing any better, I was doing art um, in a technique. It's a form of decoupage. Mm-hmm. Um, I make original illustrations, I cut them out, I glue them down in layers onto wood or um, sometimes painted paper um, in order to make a, a sort of layered picture that hopefully has a little texture and feels a bit 3D. Right. Uh, but I did that for the entire book. I did that for um, the entire graphic novel. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and for me and anyone who's read it, there's that excellent two-page spread at the back describing that process just so you know here's how much work went into this and why it looks the way it does and you know in some ways it's it is more work but in some ways it isn't because i don't have to plan things out as much at the beginning i can kind of move stuff around a little bit until i'm happy with the interior so um i don't know maybe maybe it is more work i just it's my brain works that way. Sure. <laughs> so it's just the process that's easier for me. So w- was that decision based on, like, that's just where your brain went when you decided, okay, I need to make backgrounds for all of these characters? <laughs> yes and no. I think also the art we were showing to Archaea was all decoupage. And they mm. said, just keep doing that. So work. Um, it ended up working. It's, it's kind of my preferred way to work to this day. Although I don't get to do it as often as I like. Sure. So. Now, and I can see why Archaea of anyone would pick it up because they did such strange things. They did. For several years there. They did. They, they still do to an extent. But um, this was back in the early days when it was, you know, Mark Smiley who did Artesia. Um, David Peterson was really just sort of getting off. Uh, he wasn't. Get, I wouldn't say he was getting off the ground, but he was definitely early days still for Mouse Guard, mm-hmm. um, which, in and of itself, is such a bizarre and wonderful book. It it feels like woodcuts. Every time Who I else look, does at, that. You every know? time I look at the illustrations in that book, I get mm. 
tired because of how much work went into it, I but know. it's so pretty. It's so pretty. It's so, and he has a printmaking background, and you can really oh. tell it once you once you know that. He also sure. sculpts things. You know, he sculpts right. the little. I love him. Um, and He's a sweet man. Um, I love all of his books. Um, everyone should get mouse guards. And um, then, yeah, they were doing a, a bunch of really experimental types of things. Um, and I guess we just sort of slotted right into that. Sure. But, uh, but, but, you know, again, Jim and I had both come up through book wholesale at one point. So I mean, there, there is a bit of, you know, any, anybody that's planning on pitching a book, I highly encourage you to look and see what books are out there being produced and sort of the publishers that are making stuff that looks like it appeals to the same market as yours. Exactly. Those are the guys you want to talk to because mm-hmm. they're going to get you. And, so. and small press is more possible and more popular than ever, surely. Yeah, definitely. And it's, um, you know, again, putting on my my old marketing hat and my, my, well, my old purchasing hat, but um, right now, graphic novels and comics are the bright spot in the publishing industry. Um, I think, excuse me if I'm wrong, we might want to double check this, but I think there was a 17% increase in sales last year, which is huge. That's enormous. Enormous. Before we get away from Dapperman, I did want to ask, what is it like to have your first sequential bout when potential <laughs> is, is it the highest honor that it could get theoretically? It, I, it is. I mean, at least in it, the one, comics world. In the comics world, one, one could argue that you know maybe the National Book Awards or Caldecott or something is, sure. is about the same level for um, for book publishing. But um, yeah, it's it's like the Oscars of the comics world. And then we ended up winning Best Graphic Album. Oh, we tied with Daniel Klaus. Whoever, th- yeah, it's for, the first time it ever tied for our our win for an Eisner. Eisner's. Yeah, huh. I know it's never happened before. Weird. I know. It's we were cool like that the they first can make everything. that choice. No, they just decided. So Daniel Klaus um, Wilson, mm. which is now a movie, uh, was our the the book we tied with for the best graphic album. We were up for five awards, which mm. at the time was the highest. <laughs> Anyone had ever been nominated for it, it was really weird um, and really wonderful. Um, I also got nominated for the Russ Manning Best New Talent Award. Cool. Um, yeah, it was very cool. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, everybody that, that we were up against, so in the children's category, we were up against um, a Smile <laughs> by Raina. Juggernaut. And, and every single one of them were things where if we had to lose, it was the right person. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, you know, for, for multimedia, we were up against Black Sad. Chase. Exactly. I'm like, yeah, Black Sad, great. They should totally win. I support this decision. So, I will, I'll lose to Black Sad. Ex- I'll That's lose fine. to Black Sad and be completely comfortable with it. Um, but they... Uh, it's a little intimidating, you mm-hmm. know. How do you how do you follow that up and yeah. do something next? Um, so uh, you can't think about it too much. You just have to make your best next work and not plan for it. It'll right. either be something or not. But it was it was amazing. It definitely launched my career. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the next few things were you know going back to the mm-hmm. different kinds of comics. It seems like the next couple things were. Single issues. They like, were before they were collected. They were. So I, that um, was Emma next. Emma, Emma. Um, I wrote the geekiest email in the world to the editor at Marvel, <laughs> who was doing the Jane Austen adaptations, and 
said something like, uh, she's my favorite author, and I know you probably have tons of artists, but please consider me. And they you did. Just peek your Eisner into frame. <laughs> and I got a little spin. It spins. Yeah. Uh, a little spinning Eisner. Um, and I had, yeah, I'd met them right around that time period. So I got a call back, and they had an opening, and I got to do Emma. Mm. So, I mean, th- this is something that, you know, I've met you several times over the last several years. If anyone meets you for a brief period of time, it seems like all- Jane Austen's going to come up. Jane Austen comes up. So where did that start? Ugh. Well, I was a, I was a reader. I've always been a reader. And I went through, I, you know, I think we all sort of define ourselves in middle school and high school. I was the kid that was going to read all the classics, especially sure. the hard classics. So I was into Victor Hugo. Mm. I even went through a Sewers. period in college. I know. Oh, so sad. Um, went through a period in um, college even where I was, I took Russian because I was going to, I was in my sad Russian stage. Mm. I was going to read Dostoevsky in the original. Um, but Jane Austen novels were the thing I turned to immediately after finishing all the Louisa May Alcott books. Mm. And, um, I just, that was it. That was my favorite. Um, so I went through a period where I read, um, at least two Jane Austen novels a year, every year. And friends would go to England and bring me back Jane Austen books. I have a small collection, (laughs) different, um, editions of Pride and Prejudice or whatnot. Um, and it's, it's one of my favorites. Mm. So, just a hopeless, hopelessly in love. Did that propel you at all on the Britlet track for college? Like oh, the, specifically probably. Love of Austin? Yeah, probably. I do have a degree in British literature with a with a, um, a secondary degree in creative writing. There we go. Because <laughs> that's going to help you do art. Um, although it does help, actually, with with comics. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Working with the writer. The storytelling. Well, you're doing all the narrative work. Mm-hmm. Um, the writer is setting the scene and doing dialogue, but there's a lot of heavy lifting that the, that the illustrator does. Um, in fact, if I've done my job right, you should be able to tell what's happening in the story without ever reading a single line of dialogue. Yeah, I and mean, probably a field that more people are familiar with the mm. behind the camera, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. Is, it is analogous in some ways to the filmmaking relationship. Very, yeah. yeah, in fact, a lot of... Um, a lot of the reasons why you see so many comics be adapted into film, I think, is because it's ready-made storyboards. Exactly. Yeah. Now, if you're making your comic to be a ready-made storyboard for a film, eh, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe rethink. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm a fan of, um, I'm a fan of, of making the art the best for the medium it's in right then, and exactly. if it gets translated, that's great. But. Um, you know, certainly everybody's always aware that there's attention to comics that are being made mm-hmm. um, with with a strong possibility they'll get looked at to be made into different projects. And sometimes it takes, you know, 25 years like Bone. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, or, well, I mean, we've had a Watchmen, but this new Watchmen is a really interesting reinterpretation. Oh, it's so good. It's really good. Well, I, I guess slightly different Ingram question. Did uh, having worked with publishers yeah. on the Ingram side yep. influence how you work with them now or your perspective on it? I think so. I mean, yeah, I, knowing how the machine works and how books flow through the system, um, I'm really cognizant of, of trying to hit deadlines. Sure. I'm not blasé about that at all. Uh, but also, I mean... 
one of the things that that I as a buyer always looked for was that you know sales get higher between you know the first book that a person's done and the second book that a person's done and things so you you constantly try to improve or get a book that's going to sell a little better or or market it a little mm-hmm. more aggressively so um I I think I pay more attention to stuff like that than maybe other creators do just sure. because I know that that's that's what's going to get me a bigger, to be completely mercenary, a bigger advance. It's going to yeah. get me more choices as to what I can produce. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to sort of let me chart my own course a little bit better if I can manage <laughs> that um, that sales progression mm-hmm. better. Now, uh, speaking of deadlines, um, going from, <laughs> as an <laughs> awful sentence off. to say. Uh, going from uh, your first graphic novel, which yeah. it sounds like was done over the period of years. No. No? No, no. We um, got the contract. I was at Disney World in Epcot Center next to Daisy Duck. Nice. Sitting in the corner when we got the call that they were going to accept the book. Um, and at that point, we had about a year and a half to get it done. Oh, okay. But Jim hadn't written the book at all yet, so I, I guess I probably got started on little pieces of it that fall, um, and had finished it by the following September. Mm. So it was about a year for me oh. while working a fifty-hour-a-week job. So right. that was fun. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, uh, speaking of deadlines and coming yeah. off of that, how does process change going from the graphic novel to? I, I believe a monthly? That, I, yeah, because Emma was a monthly miniseries. Lost Vegas was the next thing after. Uh, Northanger Abbey was the Northanger, next, and yes. then then I did uh, Lost Vegas. So I did three monthlies in a row. Um, Emma, well, I, I had never done it before. So yeah. for people who don't know, um, a monthly comic requires you to do twenty to twenty five pages within. 30 days Mm -hmm. and they have to be turned in every single time it's not just you it's the writer plus the letterer usually there's five or six jobs there's usually a writer a penciler an inker a colorist a letterer a cover artist so six jobs Mm -hmm. um i not knowing any better said i will pencil ink color and do the covers. So four out of six jobs would be me. Because that's what you had done on Dapperman. Yeah, it was. And I didn't really think about the fact that I was doing that for 25 pages every single month. For five months. It was a limited series. So um, I didn't go out. I didn't go to parties with friends. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I pretty much carried artwork with me the entire time. and had blisters on my hands. And it was kind of wonderful and terrible at the same time but it definitely teaches you to get your deadlines (laughs) done um the next book northanger abbey i said yeah i think i will pencil and ink this book and we can hire a colorist and we can hire a cover artist (laughs) instead um and that was much more manageable Mm -hmm. um it also was good because moving from coloring my own stuff to having a colorist taught me that I was being a fairly lazy inker. I knew what my weights of different and shadows were. So I wasn't putting them into the inking at all. Right. And, uh, and if you look at what I was doing in return of the dapper man versus what I just finished with, um, sea sirens, you'll see, I've gotten very fiddly with my line work where I was very simple before. Sure. And, um, I think that's, that trend started with, Northanger Abbey. 
honestly. Yeah, and to be fair, the the strange thin line suit Dabberman. Oh, I know. What was I thinking? 314 striped suits? You don't plan. You don't plan well, necessarily. <laughs> that was a newbie move. So after three monthly miniseries, yeah. was there a moment where you go, I want to go back to graphics? Yeah, I, I do. And, and to this day, I prefer doing graphic novels just because now that I know better, I can go into the contracting process and say, I will need seven months to get this project done. Yeah. I will need X amount of time to get this done. And uh, not hopefully leave myself in the position where you know you're working 18 hour days or whatever horrible thing i was doing at the time so how long ago did the sea sirens process start sea sirens i think well how are we going to define process is that do you want to start with conversation with amy i guess conversation with amy that was a long time ago i have been talking to people for a while about wanting to do a book based on one of L. Frank Baum's non-Wizard of Oz books. Right. Um, in fact, I think even Jim and I talked about it for a little while, Jim McCann and I. But um, Amy was the one that really got inspired by the idea and came up with all the adaptations we we did to the original story mm. to, to sort of bring sea sirens, well, originally sea fairies, now sea sirens, um, up into the modern world. Mm-hmm. So um, we probably started talking about it three or four years ago. <laughs> it's been a while, but she um, she talked about it. We had ideas. We went to my agent. She said, no, no, no mermaids. And I said, mermaids are going to be a thing. I think we need to do mermaids. And so I kept hammering at it for a couple years. The Ingram sensor was blinking. It was. I was like, mermaids are a thing. It's going to happen. I feel it. Um, fortunately I was right and I didn't, but, 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 you know, it's, it's always wrong until it's the right moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we had, and Judy was ready to go once we were ready to, to pitch it. So, um, so talking, talking to Amy probably about four years ago, talking to publishers, it was a very fast process once we started talking to publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably talked to a couple of publishers, maybe two years ago at San Diego and uh, ended up going with Viking. So this was my first one with a mainstream yeah. book publisher. So horse, very different, very different process than with a comics publisher, but good. Now, has Viking done a lot of graphic work to this point? Um, I don't know that Viking the imprint has, but um, they do have several graphic novel imprints, but sure. it's Random House, so it's just so large. Um you know, it, it it's a little, I think, I, I don't know. Everybody's trying to get into it at this point. So, you know, it's a good time. It's a good time, everyone, to pitch your graphic novel to publish. Literally right now. Don't wait a right week. Now, don't you wait. You never know. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going now. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so they, they picked it up very quickly. I think we had a, uh, a dinner. Or, no, we didn't have a dinner. We had a meeting at New York Comic Con. And um, yeah, had the contracts in and we're, up and going mm. by Christmas time. So, so was Baum a sort of progression from uh, your reading of Alice? Always loved Baum. Yes, Ozma um, of Oz is my favorite. Um, but I did go through a giant stage for that as well. And the, the artwork there, you know. But yeah, so uh, I love the whole surrealist 
Um, tone of the different Wizard of Oz stories. Um, I love the uh, the idea of um, a child just sort of going on this fantasy adventure and um, impacting the world around them. But then, but then, is it a dream? Is it not a dream? There's a sense of unreality about the whole thing. Um, I can't remember his name. L. I'm having a hard time. It's okay. Everything keeps we'll coming find up. It. We can just pop it in in a second. But yeah, it's keeps coming up with the movie. That's not what I oh, want. Oh dear, no. What is his name? Anyways, um, but but um, one of the things I really liked about the Sea Sirens, what Sea Denslow fairies? Yes. W.W. Denslow. W.W. Denslow. W.W. Denslow, the Dot original com. illustrator of <laughs> the uh, uh, Frank Baum books. Uh, was a huge inspiration. I love his artwork. Um, but, uh, so, not too many people know, Frank Baum, uh, like J.K. Rowling in a way, decided that he was super tired of doing his book series that he was most famous for um, and decided to write a different one. Yeah. And like J.K. Rowling, his fans said, nope, we mm. only want The Wizard of Oz from you, sir. The Conan and Doyle problem. They did, exactly. Can't write anything else. So he got two books done in the series. One was called Sea Fairies and one was called Sky Island. Mm. And then his fan said, nope, only Wizard of Oz. And he um, ended up saying, ha, 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 fool, fool. I'll, I'll write Wizard of Oz, but I'll write these characters into The Wizard of Oz, and we'll talk less about Oz eventually, and it'll just be adventure. So hmm. he kind of got the best of both eventually. Um, but the two books in that series were the jumping off point for the two books that Amy and I just did. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, Sea Sirens, instead of Sea Fairies. And the one I just finished will be called Sky Island, like the original book. Do we know when that's coming? It's coming out in spring. Summer 2020. I just nice. turned everything in. So, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Very glad to be mm-hmm. past the deadline. So it's always it, good. So it was always planned as a duology following those two novels. It was, it was sold novels. as a. It was sold as a two book deal. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think when we originally talked about it, we didn't want to imagine that we would get a chance to tell beyond the first book. But uh, and and in fact, we used see fairies as much more of a jumping board for sea sirens than the original sky island is if you ever read the original sky island it's it's pretty psychedelic Mm. there's literally there's a polychrome kid in it it's very (laughs) um it's a very very surreal book we were a little more down to earth in in sky island but it's fun we got to um have the mermaids go on land a bit instead. Hmm. There's a kidnapped mermaid and she's got to be saved. So, <laughs> so would you go beyond the the two sure. if asked? Sure. If, if they do well enough, everyone go out and buy a copy, please. Um, then there is certainly an opening for additional books in the series. Hmm. So um, hopefully Trot and that's the main character and her uh, sidekick Captain Bill the Cat will continue on their adventures after this. I kind of know what I want to do for the third one if okay. they come back to us. So, yeah, I have to talk to Amy about it, but I have an idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Captain Bill, based loosely on your cat, at least in visage, he is yes. It, my uh, Captain Bill in the book has one eye. My cat does have two eyes, oh. but um, Captain Bill is a lot like my cat Benedict Cumberbatch. That's yep. his name. Um, big Maine Coon-ish and uh, gets into a lot of trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. So 
So uh, it sounds like, you know, both in the case of uh, Dapper Man and Sea Sirens, the sort of handshake or, or the initial pitch happened at conventions. Um, not for Sea Sirens. Sea Sirens was done at, at, at that... I did not, at the time of um, Dapper Man, have an agent. Um, I do have an agent now, and she's the one who took it and pitched it to different mm. publishers. Um, when she had a, initially thought that Maybe it wouldn't. Uh, I don't know. We, 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 when we had originally talked about it, um, I had talked to some other friends who were in publishing, so I did have a meeting at a convention about it, but that very rarely happens. Usually, in that case, you sort of point them toward your um, toward your agent after mm-hmm. having the conversation. Um, and by that point, she had already been talking to Viking, and the Viking deal was the better deal, so sure. we went with that one. Now, uh, before any of this like, before Dapperman, did you ever go to conventions? I did. I, um, I was the, I wasn't, Ingram doesn't really have category buyers because it's a wholesaler, but um, I was buying distributed lines. And at that point that encompassed most of the graphic novels. So um, I was, um, I was one of the main graphic novel buyers mm. and would had occasionally talked to people into if I paid my way, <laughs> letting me get a badge for San Diego for sure. different conventions and go there to to talk to different publishers about mm-hmm. either being able to carry their their comics or maybe have meetings because maybe have meetings to sort of figure out ways we could better work together or sort of structure their um, their their publishing program so it worked better for the bookstore market right. doesn't always work but you have the conversation so mm-hmm. you know so how how is that transition from going to conventions as an ingram rep to being behind a table i don't walk around anymore oh no. um, yeah at the time i used to just kind of wander around and meet people and and have specific meetings and talk to them now most of my days are spent sitting at a table <laughs> Um, and talking to customers, I will leave occasionally to have meetings, yeah. but by and large, I'm I'm behind a table the entire time, sort of trying to promote my product, yeah. promote the book. Yeah, you got to be behind the table; nobody can buy it. You do. People tend to buy more if you're behind the table, but but even beyond the buying part, I like to talk to people about the books because. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not always buy right away, but if they know about the stories. Um, They'll come back and look for it later. Yeah. I don't know. Artist Alley is always my favorite part of any convention because I find people making books that I had no idea were making books. And they're in styles that I had no idea they were being done. And mm-hmm. in formats, I had no idea. It's just a smorgasbord. It's yeah. wonderful. Now, I've been going to conventions since I was five because mm-hmm. I'm from a nerd family. Yeah, yeah. Like, like as soon as me and my sister were able to walk. Like, <laughs> Not my, be overwhelmed by the legs. Yeah. yeah. And, and my parents, uh, who just wanted to go, yeah. were like, all right, you're coming with us. Yeah. And yeah. here I am, still going. <laughs> we kind of did that with our kids. We took them. My my, my husband writes video game scripts, so mm-hmm. we took them to we took them to Dragon Con and things a lot when they were. Now I was trying to remember. Did we meet at Dragon Con or Heroes? Because it was 2012. I can't remember. I can't remember. I don't know either. <laughs> I just know that like I was dressed as the Eleventh Doctor. That's right. Yeah, I think it was and we Heroes. got talking about that. I, I think feel it like was it Heroes. was. Because I um, I've done Dragon Con a couple of times since I since I stopped just going as a fan <laughs> and started going as a pro and it's kind of hard it's kind of hard to go to your home convention as a pro instead of being a fan just because uh, you have commissions and things you have homework yeah 
And you can't go to parties with your friends. Instead, you have to just sort of be good and mm-hmm. stay and work. So, yeah, it's fun. It's been interesting for me, just in the age that I've grown up mm-hmm. going to conventions, because mm-hmm. it's a weird middle where I've heard about the old days from, from the old guard <laughs> of artists where it was nearly a trade show and like you would bring in your portfolio to get a marvel rep to see if they wanted to give you some work yeah that doesn't happen really at at the smaller conventions not the small it it does still happen but you tend to um i i got a job for vertigo at a convention um what do you do with vertigo it didn't come out. Oh. It was very sad. I, uh, they were wonderful. They hired me. There was just a, it was right during the time period where they were moving offices across mm. country. I had a um, a new editor who got handed the project. There was a problem with the writer's contract. Oh. They paid me for everything. Oh. It was it was lovely, but it was only an eight page story. But okay. uh, but I did walk into Emerald City Comic Con with a portfolio and an earnest attitude and <laughs> say, you know, hey, and they gave me a job. So yeah. <laughs> you can get them. It just takes a, you know, you just, I, I think they don't necessarily always walk around to your table. Sure. Although I will suggest anyone, New York Comic Con, lots of off, lots of editors walk around sure. and look at stuff. Because it's the hometown. It's the hometown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, so did you start tabling for Dapper Men? I did. Mm-hmm. Even before, I, I did Heroes Con before it had come out. It was weird. Yeah, I know. It happens. But it was um but Jim knew the market really well and uh said we needed to start sort of showing stuff off and talking to people and it worked. Yeah. So it, it's a business expense for marketing. Exactly. Yeah. Um and Heroes Con more than any other place is all about commissions and getting original artwork. So people will come and um that that was that was the most diverse set of commissions I've ever gotten before mm-hmm. people knew who I was. I did all sorts of crazy things. But you can pay for your table and expenses pretty easily by doing some artwork for people. Yeah. And it's a good way to start talking to people about what you're doing. This might be a time for a plug. When's your next convention? Do you know? My next convention is C2E2, which frighteningly is in Chicago in February. Oh, God. Yeah. I think I'm going to pick one of the hotels with the have a trail attachment so I don't have to hit the streets of Chicago in February. A little scared. <laughs> but I get to go to Portsmouth Comic Con next year hmm. in Portsmouth, England. That'll be fun. Yeah, and you just got back from Thought Bubble? I did. Thought Bubble in Harrogate, England, which is wonderful. Mm. If you ever have a chance to go, highly recommend. Yeah, is that specific? I assume it's specifically comics being called Thought it's Bubble. It's specifically comics, yes. Um, it's. Uh, I think it might be the biggest convention. In, That's a byline I was seeing on Twitter. I think it is the biggest convention in the UK. Um, this particular year, it was one weekend away from Paris, from the Paris um, Comic Con. Hmm. So I wish I'd known that. I would have tried to do both of them sure. <laughs> a week apart. It would have been fun. But um, but yeah, it, it was great. And uh, it's really interesting to see what... European, what the European comics are doing that we're not yeah. right now it was fascinating. Lots of fun people to meet, talk are you, to. Are you familiar with Shortbox? No. Uh, I, they were posting about being at Thought Bubble. I think that's what they're called. Yeah. Um, it's a small press subscription box. Oh, it's like yeah, heavily curated. I've heard of this, yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah, they were uh, 
they seem to have a pretty decent presence at Thought Bubble, and yeah. I've just recently become familiar with them. There's a surprisingly large number of Americans there. <laughs> <laughs> It's all I can say. Like uh, Spike Troutman was there hmm. with um, Iron Circus Press and yeah. things. It was good. So, um, was the feel less focused on big two than uh, oh, most conventions? Definitely. I mean, I I suppose there were people that were were selling prints or whatnot, but um, what I was told before I got there, and what I found to be true, was that. Um, they're really the folks that are shopping there are really sort of looking for um new books that they haven't seen before sure uh it is a little different from u.s cons in that people tend to not go it's, it's only a two-day show and mm. they don't tend to go for the entire weekend necessarily so saturday's the big day and then yeah. sunday things kind of drop off and mm. that's fine you, yeah. you don't have as much of the I'll come backs. You have I'll come backs. They might not do it. <laughs> and that's okay too. Because yeah, at a three day convention, if you hear I'll come back, there's like a solid 50 50. It's a solid 50 50. Mm-hmm. Emerald City is um, the first one I went to where I got a whole bunch. We launched um, Las Vegas there, and tons of people were like, We'll come back on Sunday. I was like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they all came back on Sunday. It was yep. great. But it's a nice surprise. <laughs> doesn't always happen. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I, I've been behind a table twice, mm. and it's been a few years, and it's always... I appreciate the I'll come backs. I I'll obviously very much appreciate when they do, Yeah. but it's a weird thing to, like... You're going to see them again when they make the rounds oh, yeah. again. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's this very strange... <laughs> visceral form of capitalism <laughs> it is it is it's very immediate yeah. and um even more i think than than working retail shops mm-hmm. as we all have because it's your product yep. you're selling you're you like, are selling yourself you in are selling yourself realist way because there's no barrier yeah. of internet as you are selling yourself on 100%. twitter 100 percent. which is why i tend to have very inexpensive things at my table too mm-hmm. so that people are okay with spending two dollars on a print instead right. Yeah, the wisdom I've always heard is like, have cheap stuff, like have your stickers and your Mm -hmm. art cards, but also have a book. Yeah, definitely uh, of something. Definitely, and and if you're gonna do it, I always recommend that somebody have the the book, if possible, should be a comic with sequential art, especially if you want to get picked up by someone because they need to see that you can do it. Mm -hmm. You can't just you can't just have a portfolio full of really beautiful pinups of Wolverine and expect right. to draw the interior of a Wolverine comic. They need to know that you can do the sequence itself. Yeah. In the pre like Instagram days of all the sketchbooks yeah. people would yeah. sell and like, yeah, I'll buy that because I that's more art than just a print. And right. then it lives on a bookshelf and you never look at it. I know. I know. I know. I still I went through a little phase where I thought about doing sketchbooks, but I've just never gotten around to it. So then you have to look at stuff you did before, and do you still like it? I know, and then you have to organize it. Mm-hmm. Who, who really? I don't know. I don't. I don't. I'm not very good at organizing no, stuff. It, it, it's surely less necessary when you can put it all in a Twitter moment. Yeah. You can put it in an Instagram yeah. feed. Yeah, yeah. Although you can't monetize the Twitter. I guess the or, alternative. I yeah. I haven't thought about this till I've seen it recently. Is Gumroad? Oh yeah. Just like put together a PDF on Gumroad. Yeah. There's your sketchbook. Yeah, exactly. You could totally do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been going for a bit, but I, mm. I, do, I am curious about oh, this. Please feel free. So, you moved to Nashville when you were eight? Kind of. I um, So, my dad was a physicist, and he kept getting hired back and forth between Vanderbilt and Stanford. So, mm. I was born in Palo Alto. 
we moved back to Tennessee long enough for my sister to be born and for like four years. And then we moved back to California and then we moved back to Nashville for, um, for the rest of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's usually easier to tell people I got here when I was eight, just because that's very confusing. Yeah. It, it's like being a military kid. It it's is. It's like you pick a hometown. Back and forth, like, this is the majority, so we'll just say it was here. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, do you think of yourself as native? Um, yeah, I think so, mostly. I'm, I'm as close to a native as you get, except yeah. for maybe my husband, who was born and raised here. Oh, really? So, yeah. Like in town or surrounding? In town. Dang. I know. There you go. His, both of his parents were from Cookville, and they moved to Nashville. So, mm. Yeah. It, it seems like maybe, uh, I, I don't know if there's an age gap yeah. between you, uh, his, his generation is one of the last, like, stick around mm. a native Nashville generations, it yeah. seems like. No, we're the same age. I'm one, <laughs> we actually met in elementary school. Oh, wow. I know. We're, it's very weird. <laughs> very strange. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, I don't get out much. Yeah, it's and, okay. And, and, no. you, and you talked about early on about um, you know sort of doing the gallery circuit. Mm. What is the Nashville art scene uh, like? It's not great, uh, <laughs> honestly. And, and it's and it's not anyone's fault, but um, I feel like a lot of the people that buy major art purchases have a tendency to either go to Atlanta or New York to get them. So. Um, at least if you're if you're starting out, um, the Nashville art scene tends to be um, a little difficult to break into. Mm-hmm. And and um, I, 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 at this point, honestly, can generally speaking, um, sell my art online for the same amount I can get from galleries just because it's... Yeah. Um, I have I have as much reach, and I don't have to don't have to pay the gallery fee. But um, when I was coming up, we did have a couple of sort of rogue groups that were there. There was a a group called Untitled, which mm. was where I got my start. Um, they would rent a facility for a night. Um, you'd pay ten bucks to show up to three pieces of artwork. Anything you sold, you got to keep one hundred percent, and you'd maybe bring a bottle of wine, <laughs> and that was it. Um, and I sold my first artwork through yeah through them. Um, then there was also a co-op called Plowhouse that was going on at the time, and um, you would it was gallery space in East Nashville. You would pay a fee, um, um, like an annual fee, and you got to participate in group shows and you know if if they had like a rotating uh, uh, list of people that got in to do individual shows um, and that was I, I spent several years there as well and that was what sort of launched me and helped me meet people um, that got me pitching to other galleries in other states hmm. so it's it's a weird scene here. Yeah. Um, in fact, if, if anyone says, I'm sure you've noticed, someone says, are you an artist? They assume, or you say you're an artist, they assume it's not visual art, they assume it's music. In this town, yeah. yes. Yes. No, and it, <laughs> maybe it's because I've started working from home over the last uh-huh. year, and you know, I'm not even the minimal amount of socialized that I used to be. When you know, In college, going yeah. to college here and going to Belmont particularly, yeah. Everyone is playing shows. Yeah. You know, music is the thing. And yeah. that's good. That's yeah. the industry of the town. Yes. But, and there seems to be a sort of laid out trajectory mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Like you start out in house shows, then you do the small venues, right. you get some merch, so on yep. and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's as much a path for that in local art. Like there isn't. zines or local 
co-op shows. There isn't. Uh, and I kind of want to make that happen. Yeah, well, we've, we've, uh, you're not the only one. I'm sure. A bunch of us, a bunch of us old Plowhouse guys were, were talking online fairly, that we should, it would be great if we could figure out a way to do it. I mean, there's challenges to it. I'm trying to think if there's anything we didn't hit on, because I was going to ask about, like, current state of comics and YA, but I feel like we hit that. We kind of did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... It's hard. At the comic shop level, things are fairly dire. Yeah. Um, we've we've got a situation right now where most people that go into comic shops are buying Marvel DC. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like and I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a way of consuming the story that's changing, not necessarily a, a a like or dislike of comics that's changing. For sure. Um and I've always felt like Marvel and DC stories, the superhero stories specifically, mm-hmm. have felt a, a bit like soap opera oh, for yeah. me because it's a cast of characters. They sometimes change actors, but they never really change. It's just more stories of these same characters. There's and lots the of story dying and coming back. Lots of dying and coming back. <laughs> lots of um, lots of just sort of retconning and shoehorning things in, which is interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. And they each have little arcs, mm-hmm. but it A, makes it super difficult to tie it in to any of the movies because there's such a breadth. Where do you start? Where yeah. do you tell people to read? And B... It's a story that never ends. Yeah. And a lot of people like a finite story. Mm-hmm. Understandably so. so. And, and I feel like there has been little pushes yeah. for that recently. Like, um, I'm very hopeful that DC Black yeah. will catch on. Yeah. Like, maybe only on the strength of uh, White Knight. because Absolutely. And they, oh, I know. Good. And they've also got really good stuff that they, they at least were doing with trying to get in and play in the YA and kids space with mm-hmm. some of the new imprints there as well. I think they've folded those back in now. But yeah, but they're still making the books. They're still making the books, yeah. which is great. Uh, but but they're, they're having to walk a really fine line. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to alienate your existing audience, but you really need to start picking up some new people. Yeah. And you need to find how they're consuming material and get that to them. I'd love to know how Young Animal turned out. Um, I should probably ask some friends who write for it. I've got oh. um, like Jody Hauser. Just go you know, Jody she's, Hauser. Really, she's really great. She seems really great. She's really I great. enjoyed that book. She's wonderful. Um, who else do I know who's working for? I don't suppose oh, Cecil. you know Jordan Cecil. Who? <laughs> no. <laughs> I've met him before. Oh, nice. I was super geeked out the whole time and didn't really say anything to him. Because of Umbrella or like Chemical Romance? Umbrella. <laughs> it was Umbrella at the time. That's fair. Um, but... Um, uh, no, Jody is fantastic. Oh. Cecil Castellucci, Castellucci is wonderful as well. She's doing young. She's doing something for young animals. She does a lot of indie stuff as well. Um, but they, uh, yeah, I think I think they're doing okay. But but they're also doing sort of finite stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, the next project that that I'm looking at will be will be Dark Horse. So oh, really? I will be returning to monthlies so mm-hmm. for a brief period of time can't sure. not announced yet so that's all i can say <laughs> now in terms but, of um seeing that people consume it differently yeah. is that digital is that trades or combination i think it's a combo i think people don't really know what to do with digital yet um there's, yeah. there's trouble with digital because what device are you producing it for how do you make it something there's there's uh, certainly a piracy issue, I'm sure, oh, yeah. but there's, um, but also how do you, 
how do you make it special enough? Mm-hmm. And I think there are some things that absolutely should be sent directly to digital mm-hmm. and then maybe collected at the end of it. I, sure. I think we need to sort of look at different ways to put that material out mm-hmm. and and collect it. And maybe you collect it with an extra story or two in it that makes the person want to buy it yeah. after they've already read it online. I don't know. There's, there's stuff you could do, but mm-hmm. I think we do need to be playing with that. I think I always try to think about producing something that's an artifact that people would want to have on the shelf sure. and get pretty or special enough that it becomes something you want to keep because um, your work is suited to being read. It in is. Hand. Yeah. I think it is um, much, much, but other people are doing things that are fantastic digitally mm-hmm. as well. Um, Emily Carroll, for example, comes to mind. She's started as a web comic. She's fantastic, but she also does these great horror comics. Um, and she does, they're, they're just beautiful, but she's another, she's someone I feel like did a really good job of bridging the gap. I'm not familiar. Oh, she's great. Emily mm-hmm. Carroll. Check two, it out. Two hours. Two L's. C-A-R-R-O-L. Yes. Gotcha. Yes, she's uh, great. Um, yeah, I feel like some people are, are doing... They're, they're doing that work both mm-hmm. in, in the artist and the business side. Because yeah. I, uh, I tried comiXology mm-hmm. when it first cropped up. And yeah. God bless the people who can do it. I can't. Well, and now it's also owned by Amazon, which I think some people get a little weirded out about. Yeah, yeah I know, right? So it's, it's hard. But we don't have a specific... They're great people. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. And they, they work independently, but some people have a problem with Amazon business practices. Yeah, well, and or just yeah, the, the, there's also people like Webtoons that yeah, are I was about doing to say. a lot. Wave Blue Worlds are doing really good stuff with um, with digital stuff mm-hmm. that that comes out eventually. To but but I I think we should see some of it. I feel like we should see more of it from more mainstream publishers as well. Mm. Um, I think there are some books that should never be serialized. They should just go straight to graphic novel. Yep. Um, I would probably have put the Jane Austen books in that. I'm sure. not sure they ever did great in the bookstore market. Because mm-hmm. if you see that something's a limited series and you're interesting and you're interested, the consumer yeah. idea is, well, it'll be a single book in eight months. Yep. And usually less expensive than buying the individual. So unless you're doing something that's very, very dynamic Mm -hmm. with the individual issues, then... (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it's it's one of those situations where um, I I think we're going to have to look at how we're producing the media. Um, I think... There are some stories that could be really great as serials. I love the idea of serialized fiction. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, But the way we're producing and consuming it right now is is not working for our distribution model for Mm -hmm. it. And surely digital makes the most sense because then there's no printing cost. It it does, I think. But but then you have to we have to get together on how we're producing this and, and on what platform on what platform how we're protecting the information mm-hmm. and what are we going to do to it um what, what are we going to do to still make it profitable to sell it as in its printed form um i, I always go back to have, I have friends who did a webcomic for years um it was manga-esque mm-hmm. erotica nice. um there's they a did market not, there's a huge market <laughs> they did not print it, the the stuff that they put online never had any of the 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 let's say the bedroom scenes the juicy bits in it sure oh that's a good idea and then oh, they man. printed it and they put that in so you could still tell the whole story mm-hmm. just the bedroom door would close interesting and then you would come back and buy it man that's intelligent so smart 
So we can do things like that, exactly. though, mm-hmm. that still make um, make it a good product both online mm-hmm. and offline. <laughs> I feel like we talked about the, the positive aspects of the industry right now in the early part, and now we're talking about the parts. But, you know, to bridge that gap. Yeah. Is there something that, the, uh, you know... I mean, obviously, I obviously, it's working. I mean, yeah. obviously, we're seeing growth right now. So mm-hmm. this is not... For all the bad things we're talking about... There's a lot of good that's happening right now too. Yep. So don't nobody get overwhelmed. Nope. Nope. <laughs> we're, there's too much to be overwhelmed about. We're, that's talk, right. we're talking about fun stuff right now. You're talking about fun stuff. That's but, right. And 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 you know and you know all of it is. I, I feel like we're also sort of drifting toward a time right now. People are, you know, you buy your songs on iTunes, you buy your audiobooks from Audible, whatever. You don't own those things. They no. go away. I think we're seeing a resurgence of physical media mm-hmm. that we haven't seen before. I think we're um I mean even even with like the Disney acquisition of Fox that, that uh, where you can't necessarily get your favorite Christmas movies anymore because they've all yeah. gone in the lockbox. Don't you want to just go buy a DVD and have it forever? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of that now. Um so there's a lot of transition happening. We just have to figure out what direction it's going. Mm-hmm. So, um, but in terms of like, obviously, the bright spot that we talked about yeah. earlier is YA, yeah, particularly oh, in grad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it YA happened in middle grade. Yes, yes, yeah. of course. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. <laughs> Forgive me. It's uh, <laughs> okay. Because we saw that happen with general fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, starting with Harry Potter mm-hmm. and then on through. I, I, I guess we could call Twilight sort of the end of the golden age. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was definitely those same kids, I think. Too, yeah, just a few years older. Just a few years older. But it was also their parents. It was. Their parents read Well, them. parents still... I, I still listen to the audiobooks of Harry Potter. Sure. Give me a little hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the dark times, it's yeah. always good. Yeah, and it's... I wonder if that's part of it, but uh, my question was if there's a lesson that can be translated mm-hmm. from YA middle grade to big two, dark horse, etc. Yeah, I... I feel like one lesson we need to learn is we need to hook. I mean, because there is a point in schools where kids stop reading. Yes. What do we do to bridge them from middle grade YA to reading adult books? Yeah. How do we make it fun for them? Mm. And, 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 you know, we traditionally shamed people that, you know, you read captain underpants when you're a kid and then you want to read science fiction or something when you get older people say oh it's kid stuff Mm -hmm. don't read that don't do that we need to find ways to bridge all that so i i think one lesson for comics publishers is get kids hooked on your characters early Mm -hmm. do things specifically for kids that are going to be interesting for them like what dc is doing Mm -hmm. and then have stuff for them when they get older, but but find ways to bridge between the two where it's still consumable, it's still fun. Let's make it something that people aren't ashamed to do. Yeah, I think I think we definitely need to find a better way to keep people reading, and I mm. don't quite know how to do that at this point. We've yeah. got to figure that out. That's the link. That's the thing that we've got to keep doing if we want to grow the adult section the way we're growing the kids section. I would love to see though if it because of the last ten years. YA middle grade stuff, both prose and comics, mm-hmm. has been more palatable to everyone, yeah. whether that means that they will be more into reading. Yeah. And we just don't know that yet because they're not adults. And that's part of it. You know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of these solutions are long-term solutions, so we're going to throw spaghetti at the wall and we're not going to know it's stuck for yeah. a while. <laughs> <laughs> 
so <laughs> the wall's way over there. Way over there. Got to get there. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I I do I do think that recognizing the fact that um, because comics sort of bridge the the visual reading media um, in a way that that sort of plays into a lot of the visual things we like right now, like anime, like watching TV shows, yeah. like whatever. Um, I think that um, if we can figure out a way to harness that, we can not only keep people reading longer, we can also maybe help people that were reluctant readers mm-hmm. read forever. I mean, it's very good for ESL and stuff oh, like yeah. that as well. And I this has just occurred to me, but in terms of the bridging the gap between uh, visual medium yeah. from film and television to comics, I wonder if there's a corollary between the rise of podcasts and audio media to books. Because when the Night Vale folks are able to publish multiple novels... I know. I know. Yeah. Well, we're also sort of... I mean, talk about serialized fiction. Yep. Some of my favorite podcasts are serialized fiction podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're getting back to that zone. And... I love it. I love that we're going back to sort of the old radio drama. Yeah. Except um, now, instead of those days when, like, Maxwell Coffee determined the the, right. the exact nature of the product. Ovaltine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cigarettes. Cigarettes. Nine times out of ten. So many cigarettes. Yeah. Where now a, uh, a brand has to look at a thing that is already being made right. and say, yes, I will support that. Right. So it's a kind of a purer form of the radio days. It is. I mean, it's it's more risk for the creators. For sure. But it's also low <laughs> risk. I'm making it right now. Right, exactly. <laughs> Here we are. With like two $50 microphones and a laptop a little, I've already got. It's a little worse for the people, I think, that are doing the really high quality yes. um, radio dramas where they're hiring actors mm. and sound effects stuff. I don't know how expensive that is. But, you know, you, you got to have an audio engineer that's that's on site I yep. think sometimes to I don't know I mean hi Joey hi, hi. we're really happy for you <laughs> thank you um, but uh, you, you you know there's there's there are expenses mm-hmm. and uh, they have to be have to be paid but it does also have um, an accessibility yes mm-hmm. a- a- on both sides of yeah, like you exactly. can get to it and you can make it which I think parallels the sort of webcomic era. I was going to say comics in general, mm-hmm. really, to begin with. I mean, when you throw zines and yes. stuff in there as well. And yeah, I mean, uh, zines being sort of the entry form of media. Right. And that it being such a catch-all, meaning anyone can get into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, anybody with a stapler and a copy machine. Mm-hmm. They're not always the highest quality, but they're raw. They're like they're yeah. like comics in its purest, purest form, which is podcasts, really. Yeah. But I like it, but I, I love podcasts. Yeah. It's very fun to be on them. It's what I listen to all day while I'm yeah. working. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's about all we've been talking for yeah. a while, and I'm yeah, out of no notes. Worries. Good. Uh, any recent uh, or upcoming plugs for you? This will probably go up in a couple weeks. Sky Island. Um, please put it on your... Uh, go ahead and pre-order if you can. It should uh, probably be available for order around maybe March mm-hmm. or so. Um and yeah. If, if, uh, and and uh, probably around March, we'll also be announcing the Dark Horse book. So, nice. <laughs> and 
marches uh, all the time. If you are local to Nashville listening to this podcast, there is a uh, there's a few different new bookstores you can order things from. Yes, there are. There's some great new bookstores. Look for your independent bookstores. Yeah. Look for your independent comic shops. We should also mention the library for sure because yeah. they've got our our local library's got a really good graphic novel section they, for sure. The manga section is immense. It's mind blowing. And if you go up to especially the one downtown, mm. I know that if you go up there, their entire like YA metal gra- it's its own floor. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Take they have events there for your kids. Go. Go yeah, see the, the library. The National Library System is kind of bonkers. It's kind of amazing. It yeah. really is. So uh, where should people go to find you on the internet? Um, it is www.j-k-lee.com. Um, there's links to everything there. Um, I've got an Instagram page that's at dapper underscore Janet. Um, I've got Facebook and Twitter, which is at Janet underscore K underscore Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, the Facebook one is like a crazy string of numbers after my name. So just do the link on that one. Yeah. <laughs> and if this goes up fast enough, you might still have some Christmas ornaments going. I your am. Etsy store. So I do Christmas ornaments every year and I've started doing a Christmas card. I am really late doing it, but I will have them up um, on my Etsy store, which there's also a link tomorrow. Um, and I'll ship them out or have them ready for pickup. If you want to pick up, if you're local um, on the, on uh, next week before Thanksgiving. So you can send everything. So uh, with any luck, this will be published by then, but yeah. yeah think, think uh, possums. There's going to be a possums. Nice. Just letting you know. All right. So I think that'll about do it. Thanks for coming. Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. This yeah. is perfect. All right. Uh, I'm going to do my outro thing mm. and then we'll call it. As always, Makers Cast is brought to you by Music City Makers, a creative co-op based here in Nashville where my friends and I make what we love and we hope you'll, uh, that you'll love what we make. We do screen-printed shirts and bags, commission screen prints, uh, some mini-books of late, and just whatever. So follow us in all the things in the description below if you're interested. Share this podcast uh, and rate and subscribe on uh, Apple Podcasts because we're on there now. It's weird to be legit and alongside all of the other podcasts. Thank you very much.